Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 47 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Good. It's um, super weird. I'm obviously a creature of routine because anytime we record on not the normal night, it's really weird for me, but it's a Sunday morning, which is really weird for us. <laughs> it is, yeah. And I'm, I'm hopped up on coffee and a stack of pancakes, so ready yeah. to go. <laughs> no robe though, unusually. <laughs> no robe, No. <laughs> No, I decided to shape up on this uh, fine Sunday morning for you, Chloe. So appreciate it. <laughs> welcome. We've got some more Patreon shout outs this week. We do. Thank you so much and welcome to Melissa Selvage, Carolyn Troop, Glenn Buffett, Wendy Sanders, CB, Lindy Knight, and Sharon McBride. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. And a quick content warning today's case contains some very graphic descriptions of a particularly violent crime. So we'll try and give you a heads up when we get to that point, but we'd encourage our listeners to exercise self care when listening to this episode. Today we're going back to 1991, Chloe, when grunge music began to take over the charts. In Australia, Treasurer Paul Keating was rattling political cages, twice challenging Prime Minister Bob Hawke for the Labor Party leadership. He'd eventually succeed in December of this year and become Prime Minister. The Simpsons Clough also aired for the first time on our televisions. And in sport, the Adelaide Crows played their first game in the AFL. Australian rules had just become a truly national competition the year before in 1990, rebranding from the Victorian Football League to the Australian Football League to reflect this. And obviously, Adelaide being South Australia's capital city and one of our country's largest cities, it was now part of that. So almost halfway between Adelaide in South Australia and Melbourne in Victoria was a small seaside town called Portland. It was a quaint coastal haven steeped in history, normally a calm and picturesque place. But in May of 1991, Portland was rocked by the brutal double murder of two women in a hair salon. And we're going to talk about this case today. It's been requested quite a bit. It's an unsolved, twisting and tragic tale with a number of theories, persons of interest and potentially linked crimes. We're going to start off setting the scene with a bit of a background 
on the maritime town of Portland. The traditional landowners of Victoria's southwest were the Gunjamara people, but it was British navigator James Grant who named the settlement of Portland after the respective Duke who supported his voyages. The settlement of Portland was actually Victoria's first European settlement, which was established by the Henty family. It actually predated John Batman's founding of Melbourne by one year. Portland, as the name suggests, was a fishing settlement. Commercial sealers such as William Dutton set up shop on Portland's brisk shores. Fast forward to today, and the small town has around 10,000 inhabitants and is home to the Alcoa aluminium smelter. The historic town has also been proposed as a viable alternative to dredging Port Phillip Bay, as its naturally deep waters would be more accommodating and have less environmental impact. But the quiet town would suffer a massive impact of its own when on the 3rd of May in 1991, a gruesome double murder would have citizens scared and wondering if their little coastal haven was harbouring a killer. Claire Acox was born on the 17th of December in 1941. She was a part of the Mayfield family and grew up in a rural area near Hamilton in Victoria, not far from the Grampians National Park, with her siblings Roma, Donald and Pam. Her family lived on a 2,000 acre property and Claire grew up surrounded by farm animals, livestock and crops. Claire attended the Bullard State School and then Hamilton High before leaving in year 10 or Form 4 as it was known then to pursue hairdressing at Melbourne's Hairdressing Academy. After finishing this, she worked in Dandenong for a time as a hairdresser before returning home and starting her own salon in Hamilton. This was around 1960 at this point in time. Claire was approaching the age of 20. Within a year or so, Claire met her future husband Peter Acox at a New Year's Eve party. The pair would marry within a couple of years and have three children in relatively quick succession, Katrina, Andrew and Timothy. The family would move to Horsham, where they lived for 12 years before moving to Portland in 1976. They bought a typical quarter-acre block at first before upsizing to acreage in Derrill Road. Here, Claire ran a nursery from home for a time and she was again able to surround herself and her family with a host of animals. Claire was described as a very warm and caring person who put her family first. Claire worked at Lorraine's hairdressing salon in Portland at this time, but it was Peter's work in a local real estate agency that initially drew them to the area. Peter would later change jobs, working for the local aluminium smelter, a concreting company, and then a gas company before retiring in 1990. This was off the back of two heart attacks Peter had in December of 1989, followed by bypass surgery, which brought on his retirement and subsequently regular rounds of golf for exercise on doctor's orders. The Acox were in a good financial position at this time with no debts. The couple were planning to purchase a mobile home in the near future to travel around Australia together. Claire only worked part-time for a bit of lifestyle money that would go towards this trip 
and at this time in 1991, she was working at a hair salon called the Old London Coiffure. On the 3rd of May, it was a regular leisurely Friday for the ACOX. Claire was due to start work around 1pm and Peter, enjoying his retirement, was having an annual grudge match of golf with a trio of his retired buddies, Bill, Rod and Jeff. The pair parted ways in the early afternoon with a goodbye kiss, Claire off to set a few perms and Peter to sink a few putts and probably a few stubbies. Claire had a handful of appointments that afternoon. One was with her regular client named Margaret Penny. Margaret Penny was born on the 15th of May 1932 in Scotland. She was one of four daughters to Robert and Margaret Smith. Margaret was a social person. She liked to go ice skating, out to the cinema, take trips to England and go shopping with friends. She worked in a bakery and then a drapery shop after she'd completed her schooling. Her family then decided to move from Scotland to Australia. They settled in the Latrobe Valley where Margaret's father worked at the Yellorn Power Station. She too worked there for a short time before the family moved to the town of Portland where Margaret's father had since obtained employment with the local meatworks, Borthwicks. Margaret hadn't long been living in Portland when she too attended a New Year's Eve dance in 1952. Twenty at this time, Margaret met a 21-year-old man named Robert Penny at this dance, and romance then blossomed. Robert was a laboratory assistant and played in the local football club. Within the next two years, the couple married and moved 20 minutes north of Portland to Robert's family farm. This was a dairy farm, and Robert's parents decided to retire upon their son getting married, and they handed it over to Robert and Margaret to run. Neither of the pair were much for the farming life, however. They gave it a shot, but milking cows wasn't their forte. In 1959, they'd eventually move off the farm to Melbourne's Outer East, a suburb called Ferntree Gully. Robert would begin working for a company called King's Parking. He'd actually end up working for this company for the majority of his career. A number of promotions would lead Robert to becoming a regional director for the Asia-Pacific region, which took him and Margaret on a couple of overseas postings. Canada for six months and then Singapore for four or five years. While in Singapore, Margaret volunteered at a school for children who were deaf and became adept at sign language. All the while they maintained their connection with Portland, returning for summer holidays most years and keeping in touch with local friends. Not long after Margaret and Robert married, however, she caught tuberculosis. This was said to have made its way to her ovaries and rendered her unable to have children. After being medicated for a couple of years to recover, Margaret and Robert decided to adopt. They adopted baby Jacqueline in 1960 and Anthony, or Tony as he'd become known, in 1962. It was 1990 by the time the Pennies moved back to Portland, getting closer to their retirement years, and they figured it was an obvious choice to return despite their three-decade permanent absence. It had always been home, and they had a number of friends there. Claire Acox, Margaret's hairdresser, being one of those. On the same morning of the 3rd of May 1991, Margaret had a leisurely start with her five-year-old granddaughter Afra, who'd been staying with her grandparents for a couple of weeks. She was due to go home the following day. Robert had been up early, gardening and shopping for a new car seat for Afra. When he returned, he raked some leaves outside with his granddaughter and Margaret made them all sandwiches for lunch. Before heading off to her hair appointment at 2pm, Margaret, who often took her granddaughter to the salon with her, 
left her with Robert on this occasion so the pair could work on assembling a new swing for Afra in the garden. Margaret then briefly attended the Ocean Pier Tea Rooms, where she placed an order for some sandwiches, planning to return around 3.15 in the afternoon after her hair appointment to meet her friend Shirley Endersby. Margaret's Friday afternoon appointment with Claire at the Old London Coiffure was a regular one. This Old London building was on the corner of Portland's two main streets, Julia and Bentinck Streets. It was a historic bluestone building with a few other businesses occupying it, namely a dentist, insurance agent and a draftsman. Margaret arrived at the Old London Coiffure at 2pm to have Claire cut, colour, wash, set and style her hair. The next movement we can be sure of is at 3.05pm. Claire was seen crossing Bentnick Street by a witness named Robert Jackson. She nipped out to her Datsun to grab her knitting, which sounds strange mid-appointment and all, but in a small country town like Portland, it wasn't uncommon for the odd client to be left in charge as a staff member ducked out quickly for an errand. Here's what we know next in the timeline. Julian Painter, the dentist upstairs, heard a scream or cry whilst treating a patient. He switched his equipment off when he heard it, but he didn't hear anything again, so he just subsequently forgot about it. He couldn't recall the exact time this occurred, but later noted it was somewhere between 2 and 4pm. Kevin Corbett, the insurance agent who worked on the same floor as the salon, heard a scream around 3.30pm. He assumed it was kids running around in the courtyard outside, but yelled out something to his subtenant, words to the effect of, did you hear that? His subtenant, Christopher Liebhart, was the draftsman who occupied the old London building. He had heard something like two screams from the same person, he thought, a couple of seconds apart. He'd also heard a banging noise that sounded to him like the screen door at the rear of the salon banging against the wall, as if opened roughly. He glanced outside and saw the screen door swing open and hit the wall, then the main wooden door closed. Not hearing anything else after this, he assumed it was nothing and went back to work. When Margaret Penny hadn't showed up at the tea rooms a little after 3.15pm when they'd agreed to meet, her friend Shirley became understandably worried. She went for a walk down the street to see if she could spot Margaret and saw Margaret's car, but that was it. So she went to the salon only to find the doors locked. Shirley returned home after this, assuming the appointment had gone longer than expected, and she noticed the lights on inside the salon as she passed in her car. She called Robert Penny during this time, to which he told her that Margaret had left and she was heading up to see her, offering the possibility that she may have gone to do some quick shopping beforehand. But Shirley felt something was off and decided to call the owner of the hairdressing salon, Kay Edwards. Kay arrived around 4.30pm. She unlocked the front door, holding her young son in one arm as she did, and inside she saw a stool behind the cash register turned on its side and a whole bunch of other items out of place. This understandably gave Kay quite a fright, so she went upstairs in the old London building before entering to get some support. She came back with the dental assistant from upstairs, Shona Purcellt. When the pair walked into the salon, they saw a handbag, its contents rifled through and thrown all over the floor. When they neared the shampoo room at the rear, Kay and Shona saw two pairs of legs and a hairdryer on the floor. They quickly returned to the dentist's office and called the police, saying they'd found two bodies, but they were unsure if they were dead or alive. 
Near to the dental surgery on the first floor above the salon, there was another draftsman who had an office. His name was Keith Rayfield. Kay mentioned to Keith when they returned that they'd found two ladies lying on the floor in the salon and she accompanied Keith back down as police made their way to the scene. Keith made his way in and saw the two female bodies on the floor. They weren't moving and there was a lot of blood, both sprayed across the floor and pooling near their bodies. They appeared to him to be deceased. He returned to the front of the salon, where everyone then waited outside until police arrived. For one local police officer, the call that two old dears had been found dead in a local hair salon would have a devastating personal impact. And that was Tim Acox. He was a young constable at the time, and horrifically, Tim would discover one of the deceased was his mum, Claire. Police attending would inspect the crime scene. The victims, Margaret Penny and Claire Acox, had been murdered while sitting in chairs, stabbed repeatedly in what appeared to be a crazed or frenzied attack. The attack on Margaret was at first glance especially vicious. Claire and Margaret were both lying face down, blood pulled heavily around their heads, and the walls nearby were also splashed with blood. Margaret's feet had been bound with an electrical cord and her hands bound. Clear plastic wrap had been tied around Claire's neck and both women's heads were draped with black hairdressing gowns. Both of their throats had been slit, and defensive wounds were present on Claire's hands. But there was no murder weapon located. A partial shoe print was located inside the salon between the shampoo room and the back door, and fingerprint evidence was also obtained, but neither hit on any police databases or led to a suspect at the time or since. A small amount of money had been taken, around $160 from the register, $180 from Margaret's bag and $500 from Claire's, her holiday savings. A few other items which police haven't publicly revealed were also missing, and all of this led to early police theory that this was a robbery gone horribly wrong. There was no evidence of sexual assault discovered during autopsy, and notably, when considering the robbery theory, neither woman's jewellery had been taken. The horrific injury details from the autopsy were as follows. Margaret had suffered 17 stab and puncture wounds to her back, bruises and incisions on her arms, and had five fractured ribs. Claire had been stabbed twice in the chest and once in the abdomen. Her wounds were much deeper than Margaret's. So this was an absolutely brutal attack on two beloved family women enjoying their regular Friday within the hair salon, something seemingly so innocent and risk-free. An absolute tragedy for both the Acox and Penny families to hear about this, to deal with the aftermath and the loss, and for the small town of Portland. For all they knew, they had a crazed killer in their midst. Hello everyone, let me tell you about the Apple for the Teacher podcast. I'm Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So you're probably thinking it's about reading, writing and arithmetic, right? Well, think again. It's a fresh take on true crime, where you wouldn't expect to find true crime. In schools, yes, schools. I will share with you the tragic and shocking stories I have uncovered in my own profession. You will hear stories about murder, abduction, school bus hijack, student disappearance, suicide, kidnap and ransom, school camp tragedy, 
the list goes on. So if you're looking for something a little different in the true crime genre, then Apple for the Teacher is for you. So join me as I present The Bad Apples. But until then, remember to be a good apple. So as we said, no murder weapon was located, but there was possibly two murder weapons, police contended, and that was due to the different wounds sustained. One was clearly a knife, the other something potentially smaller and blunter. Searches around the town located a number of knives, but these were mostly attributed to being discarded by fishermen and didn't connect forensically to the crime scene. Both Claire and Margaret's husbands were ruled out as suspects early in the investigation. As we said, Robert Penny was with his granddaughter at home, had taken that call from Shirley while there, and Peter Acox was on the golf course with his three friends. Alongside no murder weapon and no immediate suspects, police also had no motive outside of this botched robbery theory. Over 5,000 people were interviewed and there were over 1,000 tips from the general public. Police worked from the family out, as they do, interviewing local fishermen and anybody known to have visited the old London building. The building was also meticulously forensically examined, but at the end, with every print, footprint and hair sample tested, there was only one shoe print and one fingerprint left that was unaccounted for. And that's an interesting point to consider too. A hairdressing salon would probably be a tough scene from a forensic perspective, wouldn't it? I mean, the amount of hair alone, uh, but a lot of foot traffic too, a lot of people sitting in the same spots, touching the same things. It'd be very difficult to get anything of evidentiary value, uh, you would think. A few interesting occurrences and sightings from around the time of the murders would be reported. However, they weren't all followed up as promptly as one might think. The first we'll refer to as the burglar. This is for the obvious reason that this unidentified perp or perps stole 20 or $30 from the salon just a few weeks before these murders. At the time, the owner Kay thought it was likely just kids, but the question now was, had this burglar returned and committed this heinous act? And was this first attempt simply a casing of the old London building? Maybe it was a robbery that had gone horribly wrong when one of the women fought back. And then we have the horrible man. Early on in the investigation, I got the impression this horrible man was of great interest to most people when it came to suspects. And this guy was described by Claire Acox as a horrible man, with creepy eyes, who was rude, disgusting, dirty and abusive. This guy had rolled into the hairdressers two weeks before the murders looking for a haircut. He was a dishevelled mess and said words to the effect of not liking hairdressers before leaving and stating that he'd be back. It certainly appeared to have rattled Claire, this encounter. She'd locked the doors after this bloke left and mentioned it to a number of people thereafter, her husband Peter, her daughter-in-law and friends Faye Hines, Karen and Kevin Corbett. Claire hadn't seen the guy before, nor did she provide a description of this man outside of the aforementioned comments, and police couldn't identify him either, hard as they tried, but this horrible man, whilst not definitively linked to the murders, is certainly not excluded and remains a person of interest to this day. The next two guys may or may not be the same man. Firstly, we have the barefoot man, not to be confused with everyone's favourite independent financial advisor, Scott Pape. (laughs) Definitely not. 
This barefoot guy was seen by a woman named Megan Mallon, who was walking her dog one block from the old London building at around the time of the murders. He was barefoot, as the moniker suggests, and he approached Megan saying, nice dog, attempting to pat the pooch, before meandering off down the street. Megan noted he had what appeared to be blood wiped on his jeans. Megan wasn't 100% sure on the time she encountered this barefoot man, but saw emergency vehicles shortly thereafter, so it was probably in the window. She reported her sighting that evening, but strangely, her report wasn't followed up until five years later, when, after the first coronial inquest into the murders, a photo fit of a suspect was published in the paper, and this reminded Megan of her experience. So from an investigative point of view, that's certainly a concern. What's more concerning is the next sighting, which led to the aforementioned photo fit being published, because this guy could have been very well the same guy that Megan had seen. This guy was referred to as the running man, not to be confused with the title character from the 1987 action film of the same name starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay. This running man was spotted by a man named Robert Menzel, who was the former mayor of Portland. He saw this guy walking across the road in a hurry before darting off up Bentinck Street. He was carrying a satchel, and Mr Menzel described him as being 167 to 173 centimetres tall, or 5 foot 6 to 5 foot 8 in the old scale, 25 to 30 years of age, dark collar length straight hair, and wearing dark rimmed clear glasses. So as we said, there were aspects of this description that matched with the barefoot man, but not everything lined up. And a similar scenario occurred with this sighting as with the previous. It took police two years and nine months to get a statement from Mr Menzel. There were some timing issues with Mr Menzel's sighting. It was later noted at the second coronial inquest in that the times he said he saw this man differed from 3.30 to 4.30 at first to 4.40 in a later statement, so perhaps it wasn't weighted as heavily. Either way, none of these guys were identified or conclusively linked to one another or to the crime scene. The case soon became cold after the first coroner's inquest in February of 1995, when renewed interest in the case thereafter failed to advance the investigation much further. The coroner found that Claire and Margaret had died from stab wounds by a person unknown, and really, that remains the case to this day. Rumours continued to swirl around town, one being a theory that the murders were perhaps police payback. Had Claire's son, Tim Acox, put someone away or investigated something that had turned personal? That theory didn't have a great set of legs, though, as Tim was only an officer for five or six years by this time, and hadn't really done anything professionally to warrant such drastic retaliation as murdering his mother. Witness payback or intimidation was another theory, and this linked back to the Penny's daughter, Jacqueline. She'd witnessed someone she knew by association with an agitated and mean look on his face driving near the scene of a brutal double murder in the suburb of St Andrews in September of 1990. Here, Michael Schiavella, an alleged drug dealer, and his partner Heather MacDonald were killed by an unknown assailant or assailants in what police alleged to have been a drug debt-related scenario. Jacqueline, who was innocently driving to work, later identified and implicated a man named Lloyd Thompson as the one she'd seen driving near to the scene, although heavily implicated alongside some other male and female associates No charges were ever laid, and that case also remains unsolved to this day. 
Jacqueline was offered but turned down witness protection, possibly for a number of reasons, but it was suggested by some that perhaps there was a connection as other people connected with this St Andrews case have apparently died earlier than usual over the years. The issue with these two swirling local theories was that there was nothing linking them that police could find, and neither really targeted Tim or Jacqueline in a direct fashion. Nothing else had happened to them to suggest something like this might have been on the cards, and it seemed like an unusual form of payback to boot. It appeared unlikely. Still, it had an impact. It was said to have caused a bit of a schism in the Penny family, with Tony, Jacqueline and Robert not speaking much after this. Tim Acox remained in Portland for another 17 years, still working as a police officer, but his father and Claire's husband, Peter, left within two years, taking off to Queensland. The pain of losing his wife, his best friend, just too much to handle, with too many reminders in the small coastal town. Peter said he missed Claire every single day, and he's never remarried. Robert Penny, on the other hand, well, his behaviour in the time after his wife Margaret's murder drew quite a bit of attention. He left Portland too, within a similar time frame, but he did remarry 16 months after the murder. He also didn't attend the inquest, citing that it was too painful for him to relive those memories. But he also didn't accompany his wife's body to be cremated, possibly for the same reason, I'm not sure. Whatever the case, his behaviour drew suspicion as time went on. Then, in 2012, this happened. That's our Beijing correspondent Stephen McDonnell reporting there. Let's come back home and it's one of the country's worst unsolved crimes. Two women were brutally murdered at a hairdressing salon in Portland in Victoria's southwest in 1991. Former journalist Leonie Wallace has written a book about the case and she joins us now in the studio. Thanks for being here. Um, why were you drawn to this case in particular? I think one of the factors um, which um, drew my attention was the location originally. Um, I grew up in southwest. Victoria and while I never lived in Portland my sister lived there um, for a period so that was one of the, um, the factors and another factor was um, just the, the the brazen nature of this crime and certainly when it remained unsolved um, I became further intrigued. Take us through the circumstances what what actually happened on on that day? Okay so it was a regular Friday afternoon in Portland and um, the crime scene um, as you mentioned was a hairdressing salon known as the Old London Coiffure and it's located on um, a, a corner um, a, a corner street um, of two busy um, yeah, street thoroughfares yeah. in Portland's um, central business district. We're seeing a picture of it there. That's the, that's the building in that's question. That's the old London Coiffure, yep. yes. Yeah, so um, there were certainly um, a lot of people in the area. There were pedestrians walking by in the street and there were people working in, um, in um, adjoining workplaces. So help was certainly only metres away. And, uh, and uh, police, when they came across the scene, came across what can only best be described as a truly grisly scene. Mm, yeah, it was kind of a frenzied attack and um, um, the women were, were found in the shampoo room at the, at the back of, of the salon. Mm. Yes. And the shocking thing about this is that, uh, uh, from all accounts, these were two just ordinary run-of-the-mill Southwest Victorian women. They were. Um, Claire Acox was um, 49 years of age. Um, she was the hairdresser. That's Claire Acox there. There's Claire with her husband, mm. Peter. And um, she'd lived in Portland since 1976. Um, she was a mother of three and, um, and she was a grandmother. And Mrs Penny was also a grandmother. She was a mother of two. And she'd only moved to Portland about seven months prior to the murders after having previously lived in the area. So they had no known enemies or cause for mm. concern. 
how is a town affected when crimes like this go unsolved? Well, people were certainly fearful and um, apprehensive. Um, they were considering the possibility that the killer may have lived among them. So they were looking at their neighbours, one questioning whether, you know, do am I living next door to a murderer, those sorts of things. And in response to their fears, um, three weeks after the murders, a, um, a radio station held what was effectively a town debrief. And the program lasted for two and a half hours and it was dedicated to people's fears and concerns and how they could protect themselves um, in that environment. There are lots of twists and turns as, as your book uh, very uh, uh, cleverly recounts because one of the main suspects ended up being fingered for another crime and also in fact took his own life in the end. Um, the book explores a number of the key suspects and also other murders that have been linked for various um, reasons. And actually, I've yeah, deliberately kept my own personal opinion out of the book mm. because I've, I've just I've present the information and it's up to the reader to desire, decide for themselves what weight it all deserves. But yeah, certainly there are some interesting theories. And, um, yeah, and it still baffles police, doesn't it, all these years later? Mm, well, advances in DNA technology is considered one of the... Um, I wanted to ask you about the cold case investiga investigation. Um, well, it's an ongoing investigation, um, and so hopefully advances in DNA technology will hopefully un unlock um, the answers that are needed. But also, I, 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 um, it seems logical to me that someone other than the killer knows who committed this crime. And so sh the hope is that somebody knows... Um, and you've been so, contacted by people. Um, I have. I've had people contact me with information. And, yeah, um, that disturbing phone call, which both starts and ends the book. It Tell does. Tell us about that. Yes. Oh, in November last, last year, I received a late-night text message from a woman who claimed she knew who committed this crime and that her story had never been told. And I've had ongoing communication with her, and I'm hoping that she will eventually find the courage to speak with police and reveal what she knows. Um, maybe she holds the key. Mm. Let's hope. Um, Let's hope. Mm, that would crossed. be the ultimate outcome. Well, we wish you well on, and the police well on their continuing investigation. Thank you. Leonie Wallace, thanks. So this book Leonie wrote came out in 2012 and it's been a great resource for us in researching this case alongside the coroner's report. But it really rattled a few cages, this book. It's a great read and it further proliferated the suspicion surrounding Robert Penny. Leone's investigation when researching the case uncovered another witness. Sean Smith operated a general store on Barclay Street in Portland for 25 years. On the weekend after the horrific double murder back in 91, he was working the counter when, according to Sean, none other than Robert Penny came in asking for something that would get a bloodstain out, which to me seemed like a very strange and dumb thing to do the day after your wife's just been murdered. Sean thought similarly, obviously, being a great bloke with a name like that, and he phoned in his suspicious encounter to the police. But nothing happened, no follow-up or anything from police on that, until 23 years later, that is, after Leone's book came out. Then Sean's report was located, and he was spoken to, the original contact seemingly lost in the mix. Robert Penny wasn't formally interviewed by police and didn't have his prints taken until four years after the murders and they didn't get his DNA until around 2014-15, again after the book came out, when the police decided to reopen the investigation. At this time, they named Robert Penny as the prime suspect in his wife Margaret and Claire Aycock's murders. 82 by this time, living in Melbourne with his wife Kim, 
60 Minutes approached Robert Penny in the following clip. Hello, Alison Langdon from 60 Minutes. I was hoping to talk to you about your wife's, away, please. Your wife's need, murder. I don't need all this rubbish at this particular time. I, are you aware that you are now the prime suspect in her death? Yes. <laughs> yes, I've been made aware of that by the police, and that's it. Did, did you kill your wife and Mrs Acox? Come on. We were very much in love. Going up to Portland for some peace and quiet and a lovely life, which we'd always had, and here we go. Why do police think you did? Ask them. I've nothing more to say. Can you tell me about um, no, going I, I, to the general store and asking about removing blood stains? No, nothing about that. I've heard about it, but I don't know anything about it. So Robert Penny was pretty gutted by all of this and had no idea why he was a suspect. He certainly wasn't early on in the investigation because police didn't think it reasonable that a 59-year-old retired man would drive down the street to the local hairdressing salon and commit such a violent attack. Sure, his behaviour was strange afterwards and police had initially surveilled him, but that was just him. He was a bit of an oddball. Robert went willingly to three records of interviews at the St Kilda Road Police Complex where he gave comprehensive answers to the questions posed to him. He was very cooperative. The review of the case went for two years and was headed by Detective Senior Constable Tom Hogan. During this time, a whole host of persons of interest and witnesses were re-interviewed. So the theory was based around Robert having gone to the salon, either leaving his granddaughter Afra at home or leaving her in the car, as he entered the salon and murdered his wife and Claire Acox. It was suggested that maybe he saw Claire leave and entered to just murder his wife, but Claire returned, so he subsequently murdered them both. And there were a number of factors and evidence leading police in this direction, which we'll run through now. Firstly, and most importantly, Robert had allegedly told numerous people on the night of the murders that Margaret and Claire had been killed with a knife and a towel comb. A towel comb was found at the scene but has never been confirmed as a murder weapon. Obviously, we know a knife was used, but it was hypothesised that another item was used, which could have been this towel comb. But none of this information had been released and certainly wasn't openly contended by police until after the autopsy. So the big question was... Why did Robert Penny mention it to his own children, Peter Acox and another friend during the night of the murders? Apparently, he'd shown up at the Acox house the following morning too, a bit of a mess, and said something to the effect of, at least Claire died quickly, she was stabbed with a towel comb. To police, this sounded very suspicious. Robert Penny explained when questioned about this that he'd probably said that because of conjecture, that it was the only logical conclusion he could draw at the time. He said that this was his impression at the time that they'd both been killed with a comb and he possibly still thought that. He didn't know exactly where it had come from but suggested he'd possibly picked it up from someone so he drew his own conclusion and accepted that. But to the police and many other people, his own children included, this didn't look good for Robert. Despite this suspicion, the tail comb wasn't proven to be the second of the two murder weapons. Two forensic experts with extensive experience both concurred there'd been two weapons used, looking at the injuries. Only one said it was plausible that it could have been a tail comb, the other wouldn't go that far. As you can imagine, there were very few similar cases and injuries for police to compare these to. 
So inquiries were made abroad into the UK where similar cases involving the use of tail combs as weapons were explored. 19 cases were explored, with just one from 1966 displaying similar wounds to the blunter, narrower wounds found at the Portland scene. So Robert had either picked this up from someplace during the evening of the murders, the whirlwind that must have been, or he had knowledge of what had been used because he was the one who used it. And things just kept snowballing against Robert Penny from there. There was a number of suggestions that he didn't grieve appropriately or for long enough and displayed odd behaviour in the time after his wife's murder. 16 months and he was remarried to a lady named Kim. And there was also evidence to suggest that he and Kim had started a joint bank account within a few months after Margaret's death. Kim later confirmed this to be true and the reason for this was because Robert had left Portland and stayed with her and her daughter and wanted to contribute to the household bills, so it seemed like the right thing to do. But again, it didn't look good. Robert's son, Tony, had also alleged witnessing intimacy between Kim and Robert well before this too. And this was consistent with Robert's past to a credible extent, as he later confessed to having been unfaithful to Margaret while the family lived overseas in Singapore for those few years. One of Robert's first responses early on in the investigation was that Margaret had the car, so he had no way of getting to the salon. But around this time, it came out that his son Tony, who was overseas at the time of the murders, had left his car at home with his parents and asked them to mind it and give it a run on occasion. So again, that went against Robert's earlier statements, as there was no mention of Tony's car in those. But he did later concede that Tony had left his car, but they just hadn't used it. Jacqueline, Robert and Margaret's daughter, also suggested a couple of interesting things during this reopened investigation. She recalled a conversation with her father after her mother's death, when they were discussing what she had inadvertently witnessed at this St Andrews double murder we mentioned briefly earlier. Robert said words to the effect of, well, why don't we just get them hit? Jacqueline responded with something like, well, I don't know how to just get people hit, to which Robert said, well, I do. Jacqueline was apparently stunned by her father's response and after this became quite suspicious of his involvement in her mother's murder. Jacqueline also attended a seance clue at which some form of spirit or supernatural exposition indicated that her father had hired a hitman and paid him $20,000 to kill her mother and the reason was so he could be with Kim. Robert's granddaughter, Afra Williams, who seems to be a bit of an up-and-coming actor these days, Chloe, she also backed up Jacqueline's assertions. However, she couldn't give detailed reasons behind her beliefs, other than recalling that there was some sort of disharmony between her grandparents on the day of Margaret's murder. But being five, that was likely quite a general feeling, not specific. And finally, the big piece of evidence police were hoping would crack this case against Robert Penny was a piece of bloodstained tissue paper found at the scene, which advanced DNA testing determined had the profiles of both Margaret and Claire and an unknown male. This was only a partial profile of the male, but as testing had significantly approved, now rolling into 2015, this was hopefully going to crack things wide open. Unfortunately, this tissue paper wasn't the silver bullet police had hoped, as the male profile didn't match not only Robert Penny, but any of the other persons of interest, some of whom we're yet to discuss. But again, this piece of tissue could have gotten this partial male profile in a time before the murders too, the salon being a bit of a hotbed for DNA-based evidence, as we said earlier. But even with this blow, with the numerous accounts of Robert Penny's strange behaviour and comments after his wife's murder, 
police still felt there was a strong enough circumstantial case against him. In April of 2015, some 24 years after the murders of his wife Margaret and her friend Claire, Robert Penny was charged for both of the murders. A committal hearing was scheduled for May 2016, at which Robert would face the music, but his final siren would sound just a couple of months before in March 2016. It was then that Robert Penny died of natural causes, aged 83, under the lingering cloud of suspicion that he was a double murderer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. After this, a new coronial inquest was opened to look into a number of factors, but mainly to address the points alleged of Robert Penny. The coroner delivered the new inquest findings in July of 2017. The coroner commented that Victoria Police had clearly missed an opportunity to investigate Robert in the early stages of the investigation. However, the coroner also found that on the basis of evidence, there was no evidence implicating Robert Penny in the murders, and that it was not possible to determine the identity of the murderer of Claire and Margaret in 1991. In summary, counsel for the Acox family submitted, The explanations required to deal with the accumulation of all the incriminating and suspicious evidence pointing towards Robert Penny are extraordinary. Robert Penny was either involved in the murder of his wife and Claire Acox, or he was the victim of the most remarkable confluence of misfortune and his own strange behaviour that it strains credibility. Counsel for the Commissioner of Police tended that, apart from the tail-comb conversation, the concerns about Robert Penny's possible involvement in the murders were largely based upon the timing of his relationship with Kim Penny, and hence a possible motive to murder his wife. There was no evidence to place him at the crime scene. Further to that, there was no evidence that Robert Penny organised the services of any hitman or men to kill Margaret Penny and Claire Acox. The murders of two women in a Portland hair salon 26 years ago remains unsolved after a fresh inquest failed to pinpoint a killer. Police had suspected Margaret Penny's late husband, but the coroner said she wasn't satisfied he was responsible. Justine Conway reports. Those who loved Margaret Penny and Claire Acox had hoped this inquest would finally nail the man who murdered them. They were left disappointed. They accept the coroner's findings and they want to thank the coroner for uh, her extremely thorough investigation. The women were slain in a Portland salon on a Friday afternoon. 58-year-old Margaret Penny was midway through her appointment with hairdresser Claire Acox when a killer stormed in and launched a frenzied stabbing attack. This case has um, been a dark cloud over the um, town of Portland for many years. There were reports of strange activity, a so-called horrible man, but no firm suspect. 
It wasn't until 2013 that police identified Margaret Penny's husband, Robert, as a person of interest. In April 2015, he was charged, but he died a year later at the age of 84. I still have my suspicions about his involvement. Afra Williams is Margaret Penny's granddaughter. She was five years old at the time of the murders. Robert Penny told police he was at home caring for the child that fateful afternoon. Well, my grandfather wanted me to stay and make a swing where my grandmother, I always went to the hairdressers with her when I was staying with them and she wanted me to go to the hairdressers that day to have my hair braided. After examining evidence, including DNA samples, the coroner told the court she was unable to identify the killer. I am not satisfied on the balance of probabilities that Mr Penny was involved in or arranged for the murders of Mrs Penny and Mrs Acox. Delivering her findings, Coroner Hawkins acknowledged the fact that some of the suspects identified over the 26-year investigation will never be eliminated. The murders, she concluded, remain unsolved. Therefore, the homicide investigation remains open. So the next question is, if Robert Penny didn't commit the murders, then who did? A few notorious killers have been thrown into the mix as potential suspects in the Portland case over the years, a couple of which we've covered. Ashley Coulston was suggested at one point, mainly due to the fact he'd executed three people at point-blank range and he was an avid sailor, Portland being a harbour town, as we said, so those were links on a surface level. In reality, nothing of this crime was even close to Ashley Coulston's MO. He used a gun, and if we believe the other cases he's been linked to, was a balaclava-wearing rapist, and none of that lines up with what happened in Portland. Peter Dupas was also suggested, and we know this depraved lunatic, old Pugsley, fits pretty well with this crime when it comes to MO, certainly something I could see him doing. The unsolved case of Renita Brunton's murder in Sunbury, which Dupas is a prime suspect in too, has also been linked to the Portland case based on MO, but apparently it's been confirmed that Dupas was in prison at the time of the Portland double murder. That was also said about the still unsolved murder of Helen McMahon, too, Chloe, down on the, uh, the beach in Rye in 1985. Apparently Dupas was in prison then, too, until it was discovered he wasn't. He was on pre-release. Now he's a prime suspect in that case, too, and many theorise that was actually Dupas's first murder. Stuart Pierce is another guy whose name's been floated in connection with the Portland case. This guy is still on the run to this day. He's South Australia's most wanted fugitive, alleged to having murdered his wife and three kids in Adelaide on January 6, 1991. A fourth child was at a sleepover elsewhere and as such survived, but lost their entire family that night. Police allege Pierce killed them prior to setting the entire house alight and fleeing. Apparently there were some similarities between the Pierce family murders and the Portland murders, from what we understand, mainly with the bindings and method of tying in both crimes, which uh, lead investigator in the Pierce case, Sergeant Steve Harding, said weren't a particularly strong link and he didn't believe Pierce to be involved in the Portland case. But Due to the proximity, as we said, Portland was effectively halfway between Melbourne and Adelaide, and the recency of his family's murder, Pierce had to be considered at the time. And finally, we come to two names that seem quite intriguing to us when looking at suspects in this case. And there are some links here too, looking at cases we've covered before and will in the near future. The first guy is named Gordon Smith. Gordon was 25 years old at the time of the murders, He was a Portland local and known to be associated with the local drug scene. 
And while that doesn't sound the best off the bat, in fairness, we should say that Gordon was quite a smart young man who got good grades. He was doing well in an apprenticeship as an electronics engineer in the Defence Force, but it seems that his success and his usually buoyant personality as a youngster was derailed when he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Gordon was said to have struggled with this diagnosis, not accepted it, and had issues medicating, which led him to self-medicating illicitly. Gordon had no criminal convictions whatsoever and had no tales of him ever being violent, but strangely or perhaps completely innocently, he was seen near the old London coffier at around 2.40pm on the day of the murders and he was seen by none other than Tim Acox, who was patrolling the area. Gordon had been a friend of Tim's brother Andrew. Tim saw Gordon with a mate walking along and looking a bit off, like he had a twitch about him. Gordon wasn't thought by anyone connected to the crime, including Tim Acox and salon owner Kay Edwards, to have been capable of such a violent crime. He was interviewed in the time after the murders and couldn't give a solid alibi. No one could alibi him, and police couldn't confidently place him anywhere. As far as Gordon recalled, he'd gone home for a nap around this time. The usually happy Gordon had become more withdrawn in recent times, tense and stressed, occasionally angry but never really violent. And while many that knew him seemed to think him incapable of murder, many in town gave Gordon the impression that they thought he was involved. Gordon had clothing tested and apparently gave a blood sample, and it was suggested he was cleared on this basis, his clothing returned by Tim Acox. But still, Gordon's paranoia grew worse and he couldn't stand it in Portland any longer. In 1998, Gordon moved to Melbourne to escape the feelings he had that the local community thought that he was the murderer, the killer in their midst. This feeling was amplified when Gordon's cousin Russell implicated them both in the murders at Portland around this time. Russell Smith was a real peach. He had convictions for burglary, drug offences and assaulting police. But most notably, Russell had been convicted of manslaughter when he was just 17. And check this out, Chloe. He was convicted of the manslaughter of James Halkett. James was a 45-year-old bartender who was killed by a group of four people, Russell being one of those. Another was a woman named Jodie Jones, who was a sex worker and known illicit drug user. Jodie Jones has since passed away from a heroin overdose, but she and her acquaintances are prime suspects in Sarah McDermott's disappearance. Whether Russell was there with Jodie that night Sarah disappeared, I'm I'm not clear on that, but it sure speaks to the kind of company this guy kept. He also had alleged underworld connections, Jason Moran being one of those. Russell was said to have driven Jason to the house of Alphonse Gangitano on the night of his murder. And when it comes to the Portland murders, it was during this time after Alphonse's murder, during extended police questioning, that Russell said he had knowledge of the Portland murders and implicated his cousin Gordon. Russell said he'd travelled to Portland the day after the murders and helped his cousin dispose of bloody clothes and the murder weapons by throwing them into the ocean at Seal Rocks, Cape Bridgewater. Gordon was obviously devastated by his cousin's allegations and denied anything of the kind taking place. There were also allegations that Russell was implicating Gordon for the reward money. No evidence was ever found to support Russell's assertions, despite numerous interviews and searches of the area. Some contended that perhaps Russell had acted solo in the murders. Others found Gordon's involvement to still be compelling, particularly when combining with strange little details, such as 
Gordon's army personnel file suggesting he had a strong dislike for women, something police contended, but his family staunchly denied. And also, he had a banking password that was said to be some sort of combination of Claire Acox and Margaret Penny's names. Again, something his family and those who knew him well put down to his concern for the women and their families, uh, but it was also a strange point. Gordon took his own life in St Paul's Cathedral in Melbourne in June 1998 off the back of these allegations and said to have been racked by guilt, Russell then took his own life three months later while in Melbourne's assessment prison being held on other minor charges. There was quite a lot more detail in Leonie Wallace's book Horrible Man about these two guys, particularly Gordon. There seemed to be a lot of mitigating factors when it came to him and in fairness, while Russell certainly didn't seem like a very good guy, He had a story too that's worth knowing, so we'd recommend anyone wanting to go deeper on that to check out the book because it's all quite compelling. But Chloe, that's essentially it when it comes to the case of the Portland Hair Salon murders, an unsolved tragic tale with a number of twists, turns and rabbit holes to try and make sense of there. But, you know, there's an answer maybe amidst all of that, maybe not. One thing's for sure, and that's the the dark shadow this heinous crime cast over the otherwise beautiful town of Portland uh, is very tragic and, and the toll losing both Claire and Margaret has had on their families. Our thoughts are with them and we hope one day there's some closure in this case. Yeah, definitely. And this case has to be one of our most requested, I think, especially on social media. I think it's one of those cases that captures people's interest because it seems so brazen and brutal and also frustrating that no one's been charged. Like you said at the end, the lack of closure here for the families is just awful. And I'm not sure who did this. I don't think I have a theory on it. Each time I read something new about it, I think, oh, yep, that's it. They did it until I read the next thing and then that seems to make sense. And I know you have some theories on it, Sean. What do you think? It's a very twisty case. You know, we've tried to keep it digestible as we can, but just so many rabbit holes like this in unsolved cases with potential connections To be honest, I don't really like Robert Penny for the killer. Um, His behaviour was strange indeed and he he clearly um, had female company outside of his marriage on his mind even when Margaret was still alive. So while that mightn't make him the best bloke getting around, I don't think it it makes him a murderer on its own. Um, There's not a lot connecting him, you know, aside from a few strange comments which, you know, can sort of be explained in a roundabout way, I think. It would make more sense to me that someone like Peter Dupas was actually out and not in prison and did this than than Robert Penny doing it or organising it. The Smith cousins at the end I find quite compelling. In Leonie Wallace's book, she met with Gordon's father and, and spoke with him a number of times. Gordon's father was quite adamant on his son's innocence and clearing his name he didn't seem a fan of Russell. What I find interesting is, you know, I got the impression many people condemned Robert Penny for his behaviour after the crime, but in the same breath, they seemed to defend the likes of Gordon for his behaviour both before and after the crime. Uh, he was said to be quite compassionate. So those observations were based on, on sort of behaviours. But, you know, Gordon was the only one of the two who had any links to the scene in that he was spotted nearby at the time of the murders, which just could have been bad luck. Um, he also had involvement with illicit drugs. And to me, the crime, when you factor the small burglary a few weeks beforehand, it seems like a violent random attack committed by someone whose you know, mentally, me- mental stability um, at that moment might have been compromised. Um, there were suggestions that 
you know, the attack was calculated due to the the different ways Claire and Margaret have both been attacked, but I tend to think the opposite. Um, that may be, um, you know, someone was after a quick hit of, hit of cash and uh, to buy some drugs and has seen Claire leave, gone in, come across Margaret while taking the cash and gotten a fright when Claire returned, lashed out at her first and, and Margaret um, after that, maybe when she's gotten hysterical thereafter. Neither of the woman's Women's jewellery was taken, so again, suggesting to me that they were after cash and quickly. Um, so, you know, ha- had Gordon snapped momentarily, blacked out or something in line with this twitch Tim Acock saw? Maybe, but going by his past, um, perhaps he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, you know, wouldn't his personality suggest he'd maybe have come forward if he had any memory of this? Uh, an alternative is that, you know, maybe... Russell was actually down in Portland on this day. He had quite a violent history, as we said, and possibly uh, more than we actually know about. Had he, with a little bit of local knowledge, knowing Claire maybe worked at the salon, saw her leave, gone in and committed this act and then thrown his cousin under the under the bus down the track, maybe when being interviewed by police after the Gangitano murder, you know, trying to sort of offer up something in return for leniency. Now, something along these lines, unfortunately, seems more likely to me. Whatever the case, it's a, a very sad, premature end to Claire and Margaret's lives and, and a really heart-wrenching thing for their families to have to deal with. Yeah, I agree. Well, on that note, um, let's roll into our happy thoughts for the week and I think they may be more interesting than watching TV or eating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just slightly. It's nice to have some, uh, you know, we've had uh, some of the restrictions ease a little bit for us in our home state, so uh, just uh, I've got some family visits noted here. We've got some uh, family coming up today, actually, as uh, right after we finish recording to visit us. We haven't seen them for some time. Uh, and we had some uh, earlier in the week as well. So great to sort of see um, people we haven't seen for, for some time and, and have a, a genuine catch-up. What's your um, happy thought for the week, Chloe? Yeah, same. Um, I um, am still, you know, being careful, but I did see a family member yesterday who I haven't seen yet since... I think it was almost Christmas, so it's pretty good to, um, yeah, be able to see those people that are important to you and in a weird way I think um, this time of having those freedoms taken away from you has really highlighted the value of those people, not that you didn't think it before, but it's it feels really special to see them now. So it's um, it's pretty cool. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called a True Blue Crime Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes. Uh, we're planning to take a week off next week, I think, Chloe, in preparation for our next batch of episodes but we'll be back after that thanks again for listening and we'll catch you all again soon thanks everyone bye
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.